All right, if you would this morning, open your Bibles. Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Um, this being uh, Palm Sunday and the beginning of the Passion Week or Holy Week, however you would describe it, uh, we're going to look ahead in the Gospel record. We've been in Mark's Gospel, um, but we're going to jump ahead this morning because of the day that we come to. And what we're going to focus on this morning is one particular moment in the Passion Week. Now, I really want to encourage you all through this week, because this is such an extraordinary week, take time, read the Gospel accounts, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, address the events of this week in great detail, take the time, especially if you're the kind that goes, you know, I'd like to have a, a regular pattern of Bible reading, but I don't know where to start. This is like a great week to start. Just go to the Gospel accounts, find each one in their record of the sufferings, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and I spend this week meditating upon those things, thinking about those things. But our attention this morning is on one particular moment on Good Friday. That's this coming Friday, that day which we remember uh, when our Lord was betrayed, arrested, tried, brutally beaten, crucified, died, and buried, all within a 24-hour window. Extraordinary, extraordinary day. And again, I probably would suggest that you consider these things this week in your own devotional time. But this morning, I want to look at not just this list of things that happened on Good Friday, but one particular item on that list. Again, Jesus was betrayed, arrested, tried multiple times, beaten horrifically multiple times, crucified, died, and was buried all within 24 hours. But of all those things I listed, all of them but one were done to Jesus. Here's the list again. Betrayed, arrested, tried, beaten, crucified, died, and buried. All of those but one were done to him. One of those he was responsible for. One of those he did. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. So Mark chapter 15, we're going to begin at the 33rd verse. And when the sixth hour had come, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And as we look to it, Father, we ask for your instruction, your wisdom, the life, Father, that we know is in your word oh, to be breathed into us that we might experience the growth and the development of the character of Jesus within us. That's our need this morning, Lord. Amen. Jesus' death upon the occasion of his crucifixion was an act of his will. Jesus died because he chose to. He made the decision to die. That was out of the hands of mankind. 
And to that thought this morning, what I would first like to do is look at what Mark says in some detail here in this 37th verse, then look briefly at the other gospel accounts and note how they are in perfect accord, and then finally ask the question, how does this speak to us? So first of all, what does Mark have to say about Jesus' death? Well, there is plenty of information out there about the physical cause of death, the mechanism of death that was crucifixion. Um, if you have any questions about it at all, there's all kinds of material out there, most of which is drawn from an article that appeared in the Journal of American Medical Association back in 1960, uh, 1986, rather. Um, and if you want to know the mechanism of death and crucifixion, that article is extremely informative. It's entitled, On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ, published in Mar March of 1986. It is not a pleasant read, but it is accurate it is specific and it is powerful on the physical causes of Jesus' death. And the circumstances of Jesus' death were certainly sufficient to cause the death of, of any mortal. Between the extreme state of physical exhaustion, lack of sleep, severe dehydration, his body was already horribly weakened at the point he was taken by the soldiers to Calvary's Mount. His scourging has been thoroughly documented. That was in and of itself enough to kill many people. And crucifixion was, of course, a death sentence. There was no other anticipated end to it. But Jesus on the cross was still very much alive. And some things happened on the cross to give us certain insight into just how alive he was despite the severity of his condition. In his hours on the cross, which were not that many, we're told in the text that he was crucified, excuse me, crucified at the ninth hour, or rather crucified at the third hour, which is 9 a.m., and died about 3 p.m., so six hours on the cross, fairly short period of time for a person to hang on the cross, but that during that time, he engaged in, in brief conversation with people, with the thief to his side, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, other people, he made the deliberate choice to ignore and did not engage in conversation. He spoke of his thirst. He prayed, Father, forgive them. He even quoted the scriptures, all indicating that he was in full control of his mental faculties and even to a certain degree, his actions. At the beginning of his crucifixion, he was offered gall. He declined it. At the end of his crucifixion, he was offered vinegar or sour wine. He chose to accept that. So he was still very much alive in the hours upon the cross. At verse 34, we read that Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And the word that is used there is the word va'al. And it means just to yell really loud. It's a really common word in Scripture. It's used over 120 times in the New Testament. Very common word meaning to cry out. And when he did that, he quoted the 22nd Psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A great loud cry. But in verse 37, it says he uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now that, by the way, is one act, not two. It's not like he cried out and died. His crying out was the moment of his death. Grammatically, those two were linked. Crying out, he died, quite literally. And the cry that he offered was an intrinsic part of what happened next. It's really, to say that it's amazing or that it's incredible is so inadequate. 
Jesus' loud cry. The word that is used there is the word ephemi. Ephemi. It's a really common New Testament word. It's used hundreds of times in the New Testament. Many of you will remember we talked about it some, some oh, maybe years ago. I don't remember. What's odd about this word is, even though it's very, very common, it's never used like this. It's never used with this meaning anywhere else in the text. The word ephemi normally means to release or send away. In the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus taught them to pray, forgive us our trespasses or forgive us our debts. Ephemi is the word he used. It means to release or send away. It means to dispatch someone. Some of you may remember, we talked about this word again a long time ago. You know that moment as a parent, maybe this doesn't happen to any of you, maybe just me. But you're sitting there in the evening and you're doing something, you know, maybe you're reading or studying or maybe you're just watching TV. And the little one comes up, you know, they're three or four years old and they come toddling over and aren't they adorable? Daddy, I want a cookie. Sweetheart, you, you've already had like four, right? That's enough, right? Okay, and they toddle away, right? Of course, the problem isn't the cookie, it's the interruption. Um, and then they come back in a little while later. Daddy, I want, I want a cookie. Sweetheart, you've had too many. You know, and it keeps happening. And each time it happens, your, your civility level begins to, you know, to drop. And finally, there's that moment, like around the 7th, 8th, ninth, depending on how much sleep you've had, where it's like, Daddy, I want to... Do not bother me again. Go. That, 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 go. Again, maybe I'm the only parent that's ever done that. Go. <laughs> that's a Femi. To send away, right? So at this moment, on the cross, Jesus dispatched something. He sent something away. What was it that he sent away? His breath. He dispatched his very life, his humanity, his human life. He sent it away, not wanting any more to do with it. It was dispatched. His life was cut loose, if you will. After 33 years of bearing the weight of the human form, after three years of carrying the load and the burden of his followers, now with the weight of all the sin of all humanity on his shoulders, he said, enough with you, away. He dispatched it. He released it. And he breathed his last. The word means to breathe out, to breathe away. He released the breath of human life and sent it away. There's an interesting identification in the New Testament, in the language of the New Testament, between the idea of breath and life. It's simply like the same word. Breath and spirit are the same word. The spirit of a man, life within a man, and the breath of a man are the same thing. Now, I know within the scientific community and our, our nation as a whole, there's a lot of discussion about questions about where life begins and where life ends and what's the moment of life and what's the moment of death. But this we know, that the presence of breath is a pretty good indication of life. And the absence of breath, well, it means one of two things. You're either dead or you're headed that way in a hurry. Jesus dispatched the very breath of his life. And, and it goes back to Genesis, Genesis 2-7, the Lord formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living being. Now again, that's not the only definition of life. Leviticus tells us, <coughs> excuse me, that life is in the blood. But the presence of breath is a good indication of the presence of life. Interestingly too, you know, there's very few points at which Greek and Hebrew line up. They're drastically different languages. 
But on this particular question, they align perfectly. <coughs> Excuse me. Both Hebrew and Greek, breath and spirit, same word. Interestingly, Hebrew adds to that wind. Breath, spirit, and wind are the same word. So if you know your Old Testament, your mind immediately goes to that incredible moment where Ezekiel is in a vision and he sees what? A valley of dead, dry bones, which is a, a picture of Israel. Their spiritual life is gone. And what does the Lord say to him? Prophesy to the four winds. Speak to the four winds. Then the breath of life would come into these dry bones. So this incredible connection between the movement of air and breath and life. And Jesus just dispatches all of that, sends it away. What's very clear from the text is that Jesus gave up his life. His death was complete, and it was wholly of his own choosing. In John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, we read, For this reason the Father loves me, the words of our Lord, because I lay down my life so I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I laid it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. When they betrayed him, when they arrested him, when they tried him unjustly, when they beat him unmercifully, when they crucified him, and after he died they buried him, man did that. But his death was his own choosing. Man chose the mechanism, crucifixion, but Jesus chose the moment. Jesus determined when it would happen. John 19, 30, therefore, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Again, let's look at the four gospel accounts and see how they line up. Matthew 27, 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The exact same description. Luke 23, 47, and Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Same word. John 19, 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. All four gospel writers agree. Jesus chose the moment of his death. Man chose the method. Jesus chose the moment. I think it's especially significant what John says about it. He says, he quotes Jesus saying, it is finished. You know, we spend so much time talking about the word finished, the sense of completion, wholly done, properly done, well done, and that's something we should talk about. What I found myself thinking about this week, thinking about that phrase, it is finished, what's the it? What's the it? You know, a song has come out just in, I think, in the last year or so, you know, what he's done. And, um, you know, we all re react to, you know, songs that come out, especially really good ones, you know, differently. And when they're well-written and, and they're songs of praise and, and the glory of the Lord, we feel that thing that rises up within it. I had the most unique response to that song when it came out. First couple of times I heard it, I felt instantly like I was standing at the foot of the cross looking at the suffering Savior struck by what is really a question, what he has done. And I found myself asking myself that question, looking at the cross. What have you done, Lord? What's the it when he said 
it is finished. Again, his decision to die was entirely his up to the final moment. Men did the work, but he made the decision. He did not die. He did not choose to die until his work on this earth, work only accomplished by his death, was accomplished fully, perfectly, and completely. Here's the point. It's really simple, but I believe it's amazing. Nothing that was necessary for your salvation or mine. Nothing, no thing necessary for your salvation or mine. Nothing that could possibly stand between you or I and our God. Nothing that could stand between you or I and eternity in the presence of God. Nothing that could cause you or I to slip from an eternity in his presence into an eternity without him. Nothing, not one thing, not one jot or tittle of the law, if you will, not one box that needed to be checked, not one thing that needed to be said, not one thing that needed to be done, nothing that could have possibly stood between us was left undone. The it, it is finished, the it is everything. And we know that. We know that on the cross, he did everything for two reasons. We know it for two reasons. The first reason is, of course, he said it. It is finished. But just in case that's not enough, consider this. There's a second reason that we know everything was accomplished on the cross. The second reason is he died he came to seek and to save that which is lost. And if there had been, if you get nothing else this morning, get this. If there had been a single thing left undone, he'd still be on the cross. And he'd still be alive. He only chose to give up his life when everything had been done. So the fact that he gave up his life is absolute proof and evidence that everything has been done. He chose to die because everything was accomplished. A single undone thing would have caused Jesus to simply remain upon the cross. I think we all know what it's like to have our work inspected. Have somebody come by after we're done and look over our shoulder, shoulder and see if it was thorough, if it was proper. I don't know if any of us like that. Because, you know, usually we're conscious of that, that little thing that wasn't done or wasn't done perfectly. And I'll be the first to admit you, finishing is a real weak spot for me. It is. My wife would be more than happy to tell you of the various tasks around our office. I don't know why. It's something in my character, right? If there's 20 pieces of flooring and 10 pieces of trim, I will end up with two pieces of trim left over. And it doesn't get done for a long time. And I'm working on it. You can pray for me. But it's that last little bit. And sure enough, there's an inspection that doesn't go well. Um, pray for us. Um, we all know what that's like, though, to have an inspector follow after you. Jesus work would be inspected. It would stand up to his father's scrutiny. And only when he knew that everything could be done was done perfectly, completely, and wholly 
if he say, it is finished, it is done. So with regard to ourselves, we have a confidence there's nothing left undone. When he looks at you and I and weighs our lives against the righteous requirements, the things necessary for life and eternity, every box has been checked. We have peace. We know that all that has been done, needed to be done, has been done. We can rest and trust. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It's already there for us. His work was so complete that upon his death, that our inheritance was established. Everything that needed to be done has been done. And we have purpose. Knowing our confidence, our peace, and our trust, we can live our lives in such a way as to speak loudly to a world that doesn't really have any of that. We live in a world that's worried, troubled, disturbed, scared, fear-filled. And when we trust, and when we rest, and when we live with peace in him, that speaks volumes. You know, often we wonder, how do we speak to the lost around us? I mean, those of us who don't have the natural gift of evangelism, where do I start when I want to speak to my neighbor or my coworker? Um, where do I start with them? Well, I would suggest the best place to start is living with a peace and a trust and a confidence in Christ that emanates from your very being. And the vast majority of times when we live that way, they ask us the questions. And they don't have it. If we would show Christ to the world, the first step is simply to remain conscious of all that he has done for us and to live accordingly. What he's done Oh, what he's done. All glory and Father to the Son. My sins are forgiven. My future is in heaven. I praise God for what he's done. Thank you, Lord, for this, this week that we celebrate, Lord. Father, we have so much to meditate upon this week. Father, so many things we can think about, and so much of it is so dark, Lord. The horror of what humanity inflicted upon the very one who came to save us. Father, uh, that is such a dark thing, Lord. And yet we know that your son freely embraced the death that humanity placed upon him because he so loved us, because you so loved us, Lord. And Father, our prayer this week is as we, as we meditate upon the things of the Holy Week, of the Passion Week, as, as we turn our thoughts to Resurrection Sunday and begin to gather next Sunday, I pray, Father, that the meditations of those things, the understanding of those things, will emanate from our being, Father, to those around us who do not know you and will know the peace and the joy and the confidence that is ours and be drawn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.